0: I'm Frank Gallagher, host of Soundman Confidential. It's showtime. Plug in. We've got a really special guest on the show today. I first met her at a gig back in 1977 in Zurich, Switzerland. The headliner was the Ramones. The support were Talking Heads. And they had no soundman, so I ended up running the board for them. When I heard a bassline on Psycho Killer, I was hooked. Post show, I went backstage and told the band I wanted in. I became Talking head soundman right then and there. So get yourself settled in for my chat with the unique and brilliant, bum 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 Tina Weymouth.
1: Well, thank you, Frank. This is a great honor.
0: Well, it's it's a pleasure to to uh, to be talking to someone that I know a lot about, but I I don't know all that much about because I've never interviewed you. But but uh, let's <laughs> let's let's start at the very beginning. Um, that, that and and what I like to ask my guest is is your earliest recollections. Of sound and specifically sound related to music, and and uh, your recollections of of where that first came on your radar.
1: Well, it started young and early. Um, when I was two, I think I, I I saw something on television and decided I should do. The, I should actually uh, make music, and so I would close myself in a closet, and uh, a very, um, I, w- I should say it was a very echoing closet, and I was singing songs that I thought would be really good, <laughs> but they they weren't that good, but I remember them. Um, they were pretty silly. But I thought that they were terrific and, and I think it was very much inspired by seeing um Liberace at the piano. He had a he had a very flashy smile. And I thought, Oh, what a nice man and he's doing all this beautiful stuff. So yeah, I mean my parents always had a stereo uh well, phonograph at the beginning. And and then um I got to have my own phonograph player. Uh it was one of those RCA um with the big horn on the end and the stylus was a was actually a, a, a piece of metal that you, you screwed in tight. <laughs> it was it was wonderful. I mean we played seventy eights on that. But they were they were pretty expensive, you know. People claim oh music should be free, but you know a nineteen thirty eight platter at that time was five dollars Wow! and uh, five dollars went a long way at that time so I think um, people should should realize that we've come a long way in making it very affordable
0: and and uh, progressing from that so your parents were <coughs> encouraged and obviously you were a, a you were a large family as well that's the other point there's a lot of you
1: Oh, yes. Eight children. I mean, we were in two batches. So most of the time at home, living at home, the most we ever were were six. But because uh, one or the other, you know, the, the older ones um, hatched early, <laughs> you might say. <laughs> they were almost another generation.
0: And you were, you were, part, were you part of the second wave?
1: Yes, I, I was the eldest of the second batch. I was known as the eldest of the second batch, but um, which was a big responsibility because it meant um, a lot of babysitting. And my parents, both of them, worked very, very hard. And um, it was a, I mean, you know, you see reports in, in newspapers now that, that uh, I'm the daughter of an admiral, but he wasn't always an admiral <laughs> you know it was it took a very long time for that to happen but i but i was a i was a happy child because i had music and i had art i mean my older brother who was you know a decade older almost um he he taught me how to use a brush you know brush technique um with uh watercolor and uh taught me to draw and you know so i was we were drawing dragons and castles and flame and it was wonderful and learning all the parts of the castles too and then i had a book uh, by alexander calder how to draw animals so i um i related to that so drawing and music i mean they were they both came at the same time as i think even before i was verbal um I remember. I remember once, uh, and it's easy for me to remember places because we were always moving, and so it's always marked by where I was. And so I I made this mental note to self: um, my name is Tina. I'm two and a half, and I'm going to grow up to be an artist. (laughs) That's pretty grand at that at that age. But I had just. um, I had been exposed to artists, and I was so so lucky that um, my parents' friends were a lot of them were very artistic. Even though my parents w- were not, um, didn't think it was a a good way to make a living. In in fact, um, I was I was kind of brought up to well, one day Tina, you're going to be a teacher. You can you can teach. And that was kind of the avocation that was selected for me. But I thought it was a good, a good call because I loved um, playing school with my brothers and sisters as my students. It was a lot of fun. And then we put on plays and circuses, and we had musical reviews. And, and that was fun. I mean, when, when you move a lot as a kid... Uh, you have to, and you have to use your imagination and so it wasn't always obvious that there were going to be new friends to be made in school it would take a while so um my my brothers and sisters my younger sisters mostly five younger sisters five young uh, uh four younger sisters and one brother they made up my my um audience and my my collaborators in, in art and music. They were great.
0: So it seems like, <clears throat> excuse me, it, it, it seems like uh, being the teacher w- was preparation for, for getting in front of an audience, per se, and and, uh, and getting on stage.
1: In a way, yes, but it didn't resolve my extraordinary shyness. I mean, I was really, really shy. I was very very afraid to mess up with an older brother and sister there were there were a couple of years there when i was the one baby and everyone else seemed so much older and so much wiser and so much uh, more together and so i i just let them speak for me and shyness was a has been kind of almost a crippling thing but uh, my mother was fantastic in helping me to overcome that i mean she actually even went on tour when i when I didn't have a babysitter for um, my firstborn when we were going on tour, I think it was the um, it was the 1982 um, beginning of Speaking in Tongues t- before the actual Speaking in Tongues tour, which turned into Stop Making Sense tour. But um, it was we were touring and I had no one. And my mother, you know, who was 65, came on tour. The band just freaked out at the time um said oh no have you heard tina's bringing her mom but (laughs) you know my mother was an extraordinary person i mean she could have done she did do pr i mean she could have um she taught me a great deal she would say things like tina you have to come outside and meet these young fans of yours i said oh no mommy please please and she'd say Tina, this is what you need to do. They have come all this distance to come see your band. They deserve your attention, and so that's what she would do. She would she would create meet and greets before they had meet and greets, and and um, make me come out and and say hello to um, these lovely people. She do you, you you might remember this in 1980. We were we did. A couple of nights at Radio City Music Hall. It was uh, to thank our fans because, of course, you know there was no money to be made because the unions uh, just to lease the place it took it all. But it was such a great venue. It had all these, you know, every vis- every seat in the house has great visuals. And so I I did get um, I did uh, get a couple of comps for my parents comp comp tickets and then t- and then their guests did not show. So my mother was out front, you know, in front of Radio City Music Hall, um, looking for people. And and she saw a young, forlorn couple there. I mean, it's was, it was like so many people in Times Square milling around. And my mother, five foot two, tiny French lady, and she she saw a couple walking away sadly. And she said, she ran up to them and she said, she said, are you going to see the show? And they said, "Well, we can't. It's sold out." And she said, "Here, Chris and Tina want you to have these." And she gave them <laughs> the two tickets. And I mean, that's a real lesson in how not to be shy. And it was it was wonderful. I mean, they they couldn't believe it. it. Was like the fairy godmother just came and delivered them. You know, it was it was a fantastic gesture on her part. That's the kind of person she was. So that's. That's who I grew up with, and so I was very, very lucky that way.
0: Oh, she, I I, 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 loved your mother. Your mother had, had, and I had some moments together, shall we say? But, oh yes, can we talk about those? We, we, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, <laughs> let's just say that the in loft living, the little when I was when I was crashing at the loft in Long Island City in the Talking Heads days, she, uh, I, you know, one had to take one's pleasures when one could, and and. Uh, Tina's mother walked in and <laughs> found me in flagrante, as it were. And she just, she was very French about it. She just smiled and walked on. It was great. But, but going back to you, you and I, actually, uh, Hammersmith Odin did the same thing with comp tickets. You put a hoodie on and we went out and we, and we gave tickets to fans outside. And, and that's always been, you know, we, we, we were always, always reaching out to people.
1: I know, and and Gary Kerper's was such a wonderful manager. I mean, he'd been a promoter as well, so he knew. He always said, "You've got to keep it affordable for the kids." You know, yeah. how how's a boy supposed to take a girl on a date if he if he can't even afford the ticket alone? Yeah. So he he was he was marvelous that way.
0: Yeah, we we were uh, of course
1: we you know we came home you know like, we, no money. I yeah. mean, especially <laughs> with the big band. I mean, we 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 just come back from eight months of touring and it would be like our you know we'd be told you have no money how are you going to pay for things and yeah. get get back to work <laughs> it was one way to keep us working all the time
0: so going going back to to your early days uh what was your first uh c- collective uh, musical experience
1: oh that was interesting again it was my mother who roped me into it um i was living in um on the Potomac River in my, my parents' home. And on the Potomac River, I was 12 or 13, maybe. Um, and, no, not yet 13. I was 12. And, and um, there was a lady that she used to go to tea with, Mrs. Puffs was her name. She had a great old, very scary Gothic Victorian-style house, you know, with, with colored glass on the windows, very dark furniture, heavy velvet drapes. But she ran something very interesting, which was called the English Handbell Ringers. And so I got to... She, my mother roped me in, and she enrolled me to be in Mrs. Tufts Handbell Ringers group, and we had costumes. And uh, and the handbell ringing was... was was an incredible that was the only musical um, lesson I really had um, truly i mean i I had uh, a one off on flute once uh, where it was just to get to know you with the with the with the girl and uh, but i but everything I had to learn pretty much on my own because of traveling too much but but this this was really the basic beginning of of how i got to um Start my musical career, and we toured. We actually toured in the summertime. We would tour on spring break. We would play um, Williamsburg, uh, for instance, down in Virginia, and the, the the historic Williamsburg, and dress in colonial costumes. Um, and we would play uh, up north. We we actually. Played at the, uh, I think it was the 1964 World Fair. It was not, It was through from 1964 and 1965, but we were in the 1964 um, version, and we played there, and uh, stayed at the Y M C A on Times Square, which was that was an eye opener for a 13 year old. So it was um it was a really exciting, adventurous kind of thing to be part of a touring group. It was like being part of a circus in a way. And, and, and I was the youngest member for, for a year until they roped in another, another uh, 12-year-old boy, He's a big, big, tough Irish boy who could play the big bells because th- these hand bells, you had to have a good wrist to get the clapper to hit, to strike exactly properly on the bell. And uh, so, yeah, it was a that was a great experience.
0: And and what did uh, m- musically? I suppose the thing with with bell ringing is is the the most crucial thing is the rest periods, is the spaces.
1: Well, you needed to know how to, to exactly count. how to stop the ringing, uh-huh. and uh, so yes, sometimes it was you. But bells are not staccato; you can't do that. That's just too hard. But, um, but we did a lot of what they called changes, because you might remember from Catholic school back in the day, Frank, when you were growing up as a boy, that the churches didn't allow any kind of um, happy music or, or um major chords and so but but they did a lot of sort of mathematical changes where you just play for long long uh durations of 10 minutes or more where where nothing repeated so you had to that was interesting i mean it was mathematical intervals and and of course it was an ear training for me more than anything because we didn't use musical notation uh mrs tufts used uh a pointer and large post board charts that with the with the letters of of your your you know the the notes in the English, in the american style a b c d e f g um and with the sharps and so on hmm. and it was a really interesting thing to be sometimes we played um What would you call them? Sometimes we played hymns, and once we were playing a hymn in a a church, and one of the older ladies suddenly had a senior moment, and we had to stop because she saw Jesus Christ hovering in the corner, of the church and, and, uh, (laughs) but we had, we had some really interesting experiences apart from just music alone. As you know, Frank, because a lot of things can happen when people play music together. It can be, it can be divine, but it can also be, um, quite, uh, cause for consternation.
0: So, so, um, the bell ringing and and then when did you stop that and then and when did you get think well, about Well
1: well we moved to Iceland and that was the end of that when i was 14 we moved to Iceland and so in Iceland i was we were living in Keflavik which is where the airport is located and there was a naval base there and and i went to um a navy based school there and I, my brother came to visit. He would he had just graduated from Harvard and was entering MIT, and he was very much taken with this new fellow he adored, called Bob Dylan, <laughs> and also Joan Baez and Pete Seeger, and and many many others. And and so, um, he he knew my interest in music, and my father had had. Um, on one of his meetings, working with NATO, he had my father had brought back from Germany a small German guitar, and so he, my brother brought all these books, and and um, and then I had to get the records. But I, so I had I learned to play guitar from books out of books, Pete Seeger books. You know, I gave my love a cherry. Two chords, three chords, finger picking styles, folk guitar. That was my early love. So I, I did that a lot. You know, I played in my bedroom. When my sister, my, my roommate, was just adorable. She never complained. <laughs> she was adorable. And, and she was always with, with my younger sisters, Lonnie and Laura, who you know from Tom Tom Club, they would sing with me um we would we we, we finally learn to harmonize and do things like that over a period of a couple of years until I went to college when I was 17 but that was a great time for me i i, I loved um living at home and being with my sisters and traveling and learning new things on music and eventually um you know frank, i forgot to tell you this, but my first musical love was bagpipes <laughs> i should have, I, I should have mentioned this um, we were we were we were of course we were again we were we, my, between uh tours of duty, we would have ten days to move the, to pack up, move the family and and you know install into a new home, and that would be my father's vacation wasn't that a nice vacation? 10 days of moving and packing. And so we went, we had, um, we had two days, an extra two days. And so my dad said, well, let's go to Amagansett because my mother had friends who were going to give, give us the use of their private beach house at Amagansett at the way end of um, Long Island with beautiful beach. And early in the morning, I woke up, foggy, misty morning, the f- The mist was thick, thick, and dense, and I heard the most extraordinary sound coming from the water and so i i ran i ran to the edge of the water and was just completely pinned. my feet were just pinned to the to the sand as the sea was lapping in as this sound came nearer and nearer, and it was a woman with with bagpipes i thought at first I thought it was a demon and and I was Immobilized. I mean, completely. I think I must have been about four years old, and and she came and she said, "Do you want to try?" And she offered, (laughs) (laughs) she offered for me to try. And I, I just, I was so, so abashed and that and shy that I, I, I nodded no, but. I regretted it all my life, you know, that I, that I said no, which made me in the future say, you have to say yes more often, even if it scares you. But uh, yeah, that was, that was what I wanted. And so I had asthma as a child. So when I was 10 years old, my grandmother s- said, you need to play a wind instrument to build up your lungs. And I said, oh, yes, please. I want to learn bagpipes. And she said, "No, I don't think so. You know that takes twenty years, and you have first have to just learn to play the recorder for ten years before you're allowed to." So I—I I mean, she was uh, she was Celtic, not from Scotland, but from Brittany, and she, where they call them the, the small pipes, called binu, and she, she said, "No, nope, you're going to learn to play the flute," and she, she got. A flute made for me in Paris, and years, years later, when I that flute, I had to learn it on my own. But um, uh, there were I, there were no teachers where I lived, and so I, I just had to learn. Um, it was a very painstaking process picking it out, but it was it was really fun when you would realize after. When you would hear a piece for the first time, and you'd say, "Oh, I learned it correctly when you when you would hear something played by someone else, and you'd say oh i wasn't too I wasn't so far off and th- and that was um the flute, so that was my other instrument besides guitar and handbells and uh although I, I i when Chris asked me to be in his band, i said look, I play folk guitar and I play flute and English handbells. How do you see that in a rock band? (laughs) (laughs) No, thank you.
0: (laughs) Yeah, on, on paper, on your job application for Talking Heads, you put down flute. Fork guitar and bell and bell ring I, yeah come in uh, you've got the job you've got the job
1: so, no no uh, the only reason I the only reason I got the job was because I bought the guitar I bought the you know the bass guitar I, I had the car I I drove the band everywhere and um and I eventually bought the amps but I mean all that you know that meant going without you know meals for yeah. months on end um, and so I, you know, I, I went from my, my normal felt weight down to, you know, pit squeak of 95 pounds, you know, it was not my fight, my, my fighting weight, but, um, uh, I would have to get that back up, you know, <laughs> as fast as I could living on the Bowery um, yeah. as we were back then. But yeah, it wasn't it wasn't a great recommendation at all. It, it, the only thing that recommended me was um, was the fact that Chris was really, in fact, I mean, he was actually the leader of the band. He put the band together. He got all our gigs. He um, he, he wrote, you know, he and David were writing the first songs. Um, it was. So that's probably why I got in, because Chris wanted me in. And he kept saying, she understands us and shares our sensibility. And that was for certain that was true. I mean, we, to this day, I mean, if David Byrne said, come and play with me. I mean, to this day, I just know we would have that, that magical chemistry that we had. Aye. Um, and it was, it was just when we played music together... There was no pain. I mean, everything, everything unpleasant went away. It was just the most marvelous, magical thing.
0: Well, your, your, uh, your RISD years have been well documented and uh, you know the, the, the genesis and, and how talking heads came together from that embryo up there at RISD. And, uh, and you've just told us about Christie Street and the loft and stuff. But but uh, what 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 compelled you to get to 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 go and buy a bass guitar was was I Chris's uh, oh, suggestion? Oh, that's a
1: too long story. I, I I I went to see I was in Nantucket and I went to see Muddy Waters playing a place that was called the Chicken Shack, and there was hardly any audience. I mean, it was. It was a, a it was a terrible shame, and I and so I was just cheering and clapping as hard as I could, so that to make as big a noise as I could, because he was so extraordinary. I mean, he was playing as if as if he were playing to you know a hundred thousand people. He played his heart out, and he sang his heart out, and and I said, oh, so this is where the Rolling Stones got all their ideas? Haha. Uh-huh and um i i just said this is this is so amazing and and i it made me fall in love all over again with playing guitar and um i knew i was not you know with my set of lungs i was just never going to be a, a great singer but i could play guitar and they needed a bass player i mean nobody would join that poor band so i mean I knew what we had. I knew what was there.
0: Going back to um, to the first time that, that, uh, that I met you, the early Talking Heads days, where, where I wasn't involved in them, the CBGB days, in the early days, but I first met you in
1: 1977.
0: And, uh, that's right. That, at that, that's at, right. At that point, I had worked with, with and I'm not going to, I'm not going to gender qualify any anything in rock and roll, but, but, uh, but I worked with Susie Quattro before that. In, oh my God. In the early seventies.
1: Yes. The great Susie Quatro. Amazing. Um, she came from a very musical family. Her father was a, was a professional musician and uh, all the kids in, in their family played instruments and they played as a, fa- you know, they played together and, so I mean, she could play more than just bass, um, but she but she had her her whole stage uh, shtick was just fantastic. I mean, she was a major incentive for for Joan Jett, for instance. Oh uh, yes. Um, in the, and the Runaways, the other Runaways. You know, her her all leather outfits. Oh wow! I, and <laughs> um, she was she and she played heavy, heavy. Um, you know, rock, and she really rocked that bass, and she could sing, and um, so the girl was, um, she was an amazing girl, and you know, tiny, tiny little thing, but she really knew what she was doing, very, very professional, and um, so, yeah, Chris used to, in the, when we first moved to New York City, Chris would bring home um, on his... Various forays into New York City. He'd come back from the record store, and he would bring home Susie Quattro records and say, "Look, Tina, you could do this."
0: <laughs> I, I was actually I was actually there when when Susie made her transition from denim and. Uh, tomboy look and mickey most and the the haircut and everything else was like overnight the leather suit can they can oh
1: that was a great look so and as tina turner will tell you 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 know leather is the best thing for on stage because it's like a second skin it breathes yeah and you can sweat in it and you don't have to launder it you just set it out to dry Put it on the next day; it becomes your skin again. Oh. It's, she was she was brilliant, and you told me you'd worked with her, and um, I wanted to know all about her.
0: So, so, but I, I
1: didn't get to meet her until oh gosh. Well,
0: uh, well we way bup- late. We bumped into her at the BBC when we were in London that's with Tom Tom Club.
1: Yeah, the, one of our last one of our last tours. Um,
0: it was, uh, yeah, that was an awesome meeting, yeah. But but now, now so so when I, uh, I so I came, I, I met Talking Heads in 1977 when I came up, showed up to do that tour with the Ramones and Talking Heads. Do you remember meeting me back then in those days? Do, you do I any,
1: remember meeting you? Do you have of any, well, any
0: recollection of that, of, of how that, my relationship with the band and everything started to take place.
1: Oh yes, you came. You know the 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 after party was always in Chris's in my room. Yes, <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, everybody else insisted that um, no, my room must remain my inner sanctum, and uh, so so yeah, everybody would come with their beers and their cigarettes and you came with your hash under glass yes which which was a godsend <laughs> <laughs> it was so it was so lovely and and uh, and you told us many different tales and you and probably some of the dirtiest lyrics i've ever heard in my life <laughs> limericks
0: <laughs> yes still have them but not yes. but not here
1: yes did you li- did you learn them from princess margaret
0: Oh no, no! Um, I actually, I think I, I got a lot of them from an, from an Australian guy I met in London in 1966. And it's funny; they're, <laughs> they're they're so brutal that I still remember them.
1: Oh yeah, boy, we had some good times. But, um, and y- you weren't doing sound for the Ramones, no. But, but, um, but we had we had a great um, company. And Jeffrey Hooper was part of it and I mean, we, we had it was, it was a miracle in a way that how we just got to have the best and I always said you know, after, after that one tour in Europe and UK I, I always said roadies from the UK road crew from the UK are very different from American road crew first of all they don't whine. Secondly, they're so tough. (laughs) They always know how to improvise. Do you remember when you improvised for me and you, when I was playing keyboards and my, um, my keyboard, one of the keyboard stands broke. And so you weren't going to give a bad keyboard stand to Jerry Harrison. So you you bought you guys went out and bought me a an ironing board. Yep. <laughs> you thought that would be very funny for the for the little lady of the house.
0: Yeah, it, it, to bring a little dom- domesticity to the stage. But but you know it was pra- <laughs> it was practical, and actually a lot of people thought it was art. You know, oh look how artistic they are. They have an ironing board instead of a key- <laughs> keyboard.
1: <laughs> That's really funny. Uh, oh, no, I. It took me you know, I didn't even notice that it was an ironing board because I was so into the music. It's adjustable.
0: It's adjustable height as well, yeah. you know.
1: <laughs> I think you all put a little a little black at some point you put a little little black drape over it or something. Yeah,
0: we we we, we but I, I quite like the industrial look, you know.
1: Yeah, it was excellent.
0: But we had those some of those early Talking Heads tours in Europe we we um we had a lot oh, we, had we a knocked lot of them adventures. Dead. and we and audience wise you know we never failed we never failed We
1: never failed.
0: That's true.
1: We didn't really tour before that tour so I mean we did like uh, oh we went up to Boston and played the Rathskeller and but but it wasn't um it wasn't that was the that was the real deal when we went on that tour that was the real thing. We had a single out and that's what you needed to be able to go on tour. Yeah, was a single, and and um, we and we did great in Holland because Holland was always the hippest country first, even ahead of the UK and Germany, which were big, big audiophile countries. I mean, they people spent more, I think, on their hi-fi equipment than and their music than they did on their. Their food, you know, it was just de rigueur. they had to have it. But Frank, you know what I remember about being with you was your introduction, bringing us to have great, you know, saying, "Let's go dine over here. They have really good food and it's affordable." Because you you knew the ropes already, and you were um, you were a a really. Uh, a, a an expert chef and connoisseur of good cuisine yourself. I,
0: I did like a case of wine too back then.
1: Oh yes. Not a glass. Yes.
0: <laughs> not a glass. That was that
1: that was not a that, we it was always warm beer. That was the only thing that was on um, we had nothing else given to us by promoters. No wine back then. So we had to it was a treat. Maybe once a week we'd have a glass of wine and you know,
0: yeah, yeah. We, we, at
1: some it was, or a, or a good cup of coffee. I mean, the, back then there was no such thing as a good cup of coffee in the UK. You had to order tea. Yeah, co- co- coffee was something that you got on the continent,
0: and and, 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 and was, it was fabulous.
1: And it was fabulous.
0: So I come on board, and and. uh I'd never heard Talking Heads before. I I hear you for the first time in Zurich. I think I'd heard the single once on the BBC or on radio in London somewhere. And at that point, I'd been off the road for two years. So I I was kind of not out of touch, but I was doing this cooking thing. And and getting back, and my first tour back was hearing you guys in the Volkshaus in, in April 1977. It was... It was a life-changing experience for me uh, hearing you for the first time.:
1: Well we were certainly unique, and Frank, what you did was you made music out of our music, and you taught me so much about how you know you have to have the base to push forward all the all the rest of the music because you know david was always saying less bass less bass and you explained no no david no one will even hear what you're singing if I, if we have no bass <laughs> yeah we, it's what pushes the air forward into the uh into the seats. um but um we did keep it down on stage and that was that was a very very good thing you told us keep it down on stage yeah do you remember all that uh, you, yes those were very good tips which we carried with us the rest of our careers. Don't be louder than the drummer on stage, because the drummer has to be mic'd, the vocalist has to be mic'd, everything's going to leak into the microphones, um, and the more you turn up, the worse it gets. Yes. It's just a, a no return. And, and you told, I think Jerry, he was always trying to turn it up to 11, and um, <laughs> you told... You know, he had the amp just like, it, yeah. it was just blasting right straight past his knees. You know, he wanted to hit the, the heads of the, the, the front rows. And, and, I, and you told him, you said, Jerry, if you don't turn down, you're going to be out of the mix and out of the PA. And that's all you'll have is what's coming out of your amp. Yep. And it will be back to Beatles days. And so, um, you know, we had to learn that from you. And that was a very professional thing, and you you helped David with microphone technique, and uh, it was it was beautiful. And you were very funny. You always you made things very quick. You were terse. It was like drums, bass, you know. It was like uh, guitar, you know. And you you didn't say please, you but you always said thank you. That meant stop. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> but that was those were some invaluable tips.
0: Yeah, my 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 uh, my only criteria was that no band was going to make me look bad because when the sound is bad, the audience are looking at me. They're never looking at the stage, you know. They're, they're never looking at the errant guitar player who's on twelve, you know. They're looking at they always look at, at me, and that my criteria was if I can control what's coming off the stage to a degree, you can't control musicians because I'm, you know, that's, I'm not a control freak. But if you can set the tone where what's coming off the stage is easy to work with. And Talking Heads, I must say, gave me a lot of space. You gave me a lot of space to work with. As a well,
1: we were intelligent. We listened.
0: <laughs> <laughs> we, we
1: we followed your instructions and, and they worked.
0: They, they, they certainly, certainly did. They certainly did. And then... Uh, the, the we went so the four piece too was the most lean and mean touring. There was four musicians and me and Ace. Ace and I were in a truck with a, a little twelve foot truck with the gear, and there were four musicians. There was no road manager. There was no. There was just a, the, the six of us, and that was it. That that constituted the touring party for quite a while. Past
1: this is true.
0: Past fear, I know. Past fear of music, yeah. and. uh we-
1: when we got, when we hit the States, um, it would be, it was those six and with the truck, you guys in the truck, and we would take the businessman's flight. Yeah. Oh, you, you had it worse than us, but I hated those businessman's oh, flights. Cause, I, 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 I,
0: you know, I those hate, 9 a.m. flights,
1: you'd have to get up at six o'clock in the morning after going to bed at four. You know, it was like, why do we even have a hotel room except for the shower? I mean, it's just, uh, we just never slept. And then we would uh, rent a car uh, at the airport and, uh, in order to get to sound check on time.
0: Yeah, that and was And of course, we brutal. were doing
1: interviews. We were doing interviews all day. We would get from the airport, we'd check in, and immediately go to, while well, you went to the venue and you guys never slept either i mean you you'd you slept sitting up in the truck taking turns driving and but i mean you were doing 300 miles you know between shows and sometimes more and we were doing interview after interview we would go to the radio station we'd go to the 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 record shop with the in store because you know, every time you did an in-store, and you know, five kids would line up to get their records. You know, they'd buy a record to get get it signed, and then and now it's now it's available on eBay. <laughs> and and um, so we were we never got any sleep, and so sometimes I had to write things down because otherwise my memory was going to fail me, um, because of no sleep sleep is so important oh yeah. yeah and and i and at that time i used to think hmm i must i must have nerves of steel that i can do this and put up with this every single day because it, it, i i loved doing the music but i wasn't i didn't buy the hype at all i was not it never went to my head i never I loved being a side person. Um, I only became a front person out of necessity, um, and I always loved sharing and collaborating. You know, being in a big family, you you do that, and and you learn how to you learn how to fight fair too. You know, you learn you learn to choose your battles about things that are important. You learn to reason. You learn to you learn what is important in maturity. I mean. I can't, I can't imagine how you know, how people would, you know, look at all the people who are dead, Frank, because they didn't stop doing drugs. Yeah. And their bands broke up too because of it. Yeah. Even our band broke up because of it.
0: Well, well I, I have, before I forget, um, do, you, do you still have the bass guitar that you started with? Oh yeah. And do you have sentimental value around your instruments? Do any of them hold oh, yes. sentimental oh, yes. and take you to a do time and place? Do you remember? I used
1: to, I used to get jealously mad, and I'm not a jealous person. But when I heard one of you, Ace, for instance, going on stage and going bong 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 on my bass guitar and just. Making horrible sounds with it. <laughs> it was. It was. Just, what are you doing? You're torturing my bass. Don't do that. Don't even touch it. And of course, a couple of times, um, it happened that uh, you know one of my guitars would be broken.
0: I remember you. And b- you we would, broke one uh, flying yeah, it. Yeah, and I you think. would.
1: One you, you, you with the headstock was broken off of yep. it. Yep. Um, by the that was not your fault that was because we didn't have a road you know they didn't put it back in the road case the way I'd wrapped it um the people who
0: inspected customs yeah
1: yeah and uh then another another time it was after your time I think it was just you know somebody just stepped backwards right onto it you know but they they fixed it without telling me and said she's none the wiser they laughed had a good laugh about it but yes if 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 someone else was playing my guitar i don't care who it was jerry david anybody else i would hear it and recognize it and say no 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 you know they're they're doing it all wrong <laughs> they're hurting her <laughs>
0: So, so do you when you pick those instruments up today? Do, do they take you? They take you right back, or, or are you in the present when you're playing them?
1: Does it? I'm always in the present when I'm playing them because, yeah. you know, I have to relearn everything um, when I to go back to an old song uh, because I really try to forget as much as possible so that I can I can have a fresh approach. I want to approach it the way I did when I started which was the freshness of a kid with a new toy and uh and I don't want to I don't want to be limited to oh it can only I can only play like this. I can only play with fingers or I can only play with a pick or a plectrum. I I want to I want to be, you know, uh able to Move around. I mean, even keyboard bass is it's wonderful, um, and you can do things with that that you can't with a stringed instrument. So, yes, of course, it's a it's it's a beautiful thing that can take you back when you hear the sound of it. But usually, I, I if I want to hear the sound of it from back then, I'll play the record. You know. Yeah. Um, if I want to, if I want to pick it up now and play something, I want to. I'm either practicing something that, or inventing something. So I'm either practicing something that I already know, or I'm or I'm or or I'm in or something that I'm still learning, or I'm I'm trying to invent something fresh, and new.
0: People people ask me what my favorite venue was, um, and I can't I can't give a direct answer to that. But do you have any standout venues that you that you enjoyed playing in? over the years. You
1: know, you know um, I loved CBGBs, not because I mean, that was just that was really our cradle. And I I loved playing there. It had even though the the equipment wasn't very good, the the the, the style of it, that railroad car style made it a perfect um, it made it perfect for the that small crowd that was there, uh, and for the musicians on on stage, because you could hear yourself. Uh, the venues I disliked the most were the ones that had the giant bass bins beneath the stage, because you you know you it just created vibrations that took so much EQing for you, the sound person, to get those frequencies out, so it wouldn't. Resonate every time Chris hit the snare drum. Um, I I, pref- I prefer the, uh, the the newer equipment that that it goes on the side to either side of the stage is much better. I don't like the ones in the front, and of course, um, I think it's safer for the for the audience too. To, because uh, you used to say you got to get those bass bins. You have to have them. Actively hitting the audience in the chest, yes, like like a, a thumping on on the heart, and uh, and it's true, and but not on the ears. <laughs> you <Yeah>. know, <laughs> it's yeah. so damaging. Um, the people who have tinnitus today are. are are most frequently the people who stood in front of the basements. <laughs> I'm sorry to say, or you know, just too loud. Yeah. But um, you know, uh, I as a you know, I I didn't lose my my hearing. Thank goodness.
0: Yeah, or me. Thank goodness. Some hearing yeah. lost, but not tinnitus, and I don't know how that came. Yeah. I don't know how that came about. Uh, the, the, this i'm going to time and date stamp this this podcast because we're uh, doing this in the pandemic of 2020 where where there are no venues to play there is no nowhere for young artists to to get to, to get have their CBGB moment and and uh how do you see this how do you see this uh when when we can start going to concerts again how do you see it ca- coming out of this Tina for the
1: the kids it's, it's the worst. I mean, I have a studio, I can work, I can do things. I'm not bored. Um, I don't have to go to clubs. I don't even like to go to clubs anymore. They just, they're, they're never as good as how I remember clubs being. Um, But for the kids, it's just awful. And of course, you know, live concerts, are the best because when you have all those bodies packed together there's there's such an excitement a thrill that just ripples through an audience and but that can't be right now we just for, so i think if we had to have a pandemic better that it be now while we have you know youtube and all these other means of getting music out in streaming and so forth and streaming concerts.
0: Well, I learned a lot from my, my, my years with Talking Heads and and uh, I, I, I'm I'm honored to have been a part of it. You know? well, I'm, I'm likewise, still a part Frank, of it. I mean, still part you, of
1: we're it. still a part. We're never going to be a part. No. I mean, we chose each other as family a long time ago. Probably before we were born. Aye, yeah. So, yeah I, it if was, that's possible,
0: it is. So, well,
1: not I, very scientific, but it is. It's 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 if it is plausible. If not, you know.
0: <laughs> I, 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 <laughs> it's I not love impossible. you. I love you, Tina. Waymuth. I love you too, there's, Frank. There's nothing you, you can are do about it. You are the best sound <laughs> man.
1: We've, we we when the only sound man who who even came close. Um, well, we've had some very good sound people. Of
0: course, you have. But,
1: but, but as you know, but 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 you're you're my f- nobody. Nobody has made me laugh like you have. <laughs> oh,
0: thank you, thank you, Tina. Thank yeah. you. Well, and you're
1: still right. You're still at the top of your field.
0: I'm I'm am loving it. I'm I'm still loving it. It's still I'm still curious. Is is what is. Uh, to see yes, it
1: will be great to get back on the road, but we'll be hungry by that point. We'll yes. be hungry for it.
0: Yeah, we, we and should. And instead
1: de- of tired,
0: we should you know, def- We'll def- get caught definitely.
1: up on our sleep, and and it'll be great again.
0: Well, on that note, on that note, Tina Weymouth.
1: Thank you, thank you.
0: All right, my lovely. Thank you, Tina. Love you, Frank. Love you. Bye, bye. <laughs> Thanks very much for plugging in. We can't do it without you. And don't forget to check out our website, soundmanconfidential.com for news and my upcoming shows and all the fabulous guests you're going to have the pleasure of listening to. Catch you next time. Soundman Confidential is produced by Alan Black with our team, Chip Bentley on sound production, web design, Addie Bell, original music, Paul Westwater, and public relations, Paddy DeVries, at Devious Planet Media.